welcome to what is my podcast about. Thank you. This is a this is a podcast where I'm already frustrated at Matthew because of shit that happened before we started recording, and he's just trying to push my buttons as we keep going. Regardless, it's also a podcast where we sit down fortnightly and discuss a topic to find out what our podcast is about. My name is Peter, and I'm joined, as he's already introduced himself, by Matthew. Hello. And Keith. I guess I'm second now. Yeah, apparently, because Matt fucking forced his foot in the door. Uh, so, uh, how are you guys doing? Uh, pretty good. Pretty happy with myself. <laughs> because of what just happened? <laughs> Maybe. Or just in general? <laughs> fucking of course you're right. Uh, so I... Watched the first two episodes of The Mandalorian, and there was enough references to old school uh, Star Wars shit that I've just been sitting down replaying through the old Knights of the Old Republic games, and have no idea what's been going on in the world for the past two weeks. Did you guys want to update me on shit that's been happening? Uh, so, there's something I want to talk about that I was doing that's not really kind of like the world in a sense, but there is an Amazon Prime series that I discovered, uh, actually over the last couple days that I've been watching. It's called Truth Seekers. Uh, it's got Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. And it's them working together again, which is always great. And the only way I can describe this game is, or that game, uh, TV show is, you know, the game Phasmophobia? Yes. Uh, so, you know, when you're screwing with your friends and it gets so goddamn stupid, yes. that's what this show is. The, the premise is essentially, uh, Nick Frost's character works for an internet company in the UK and they're trying to get a 100% coverage. And he goes to places to fix their Wi-Fi, and almost every time it's ghosts. <laughs> and by getting rid of the ghosts, he solves the Wi-Fi problem. That kind of sounds like the reverse of Phasmophobia when we get real dumb with our friends. Because when we get real dumb playing Phasmophobia, we decide there is no ghost, and it's just electrical issues. The opposite for them is, there is no electrical issues, it's all fucking ghosts. Meanwhile, in the background, there's a doomsday cult trying to do things that ends up getting the main character pulled into everything because they mess with the Wi-Fi. Oh, of course. I highly recommend watching. It's really good. I'm going to have to check it out. Once yeah, I'm done playing yeah. Nights of the Old Republic. It's eight 30-minute episodes, and again, you can't go wrong with Nick Frost and Simon Pegg together yeah. on something. They're fantastic together. Most actor names mean nothing to me. It's just, if I like a movie, I like a movie. Uh, these would be the guys from Shaun of the Dead, Hot, Hot Fuzz, World's End. Sure. Okay. <laughs> God damn Do movie it, names also mean nothing to you, Matthew? Movie names mean things if I've seen them more than once. Matt, I need Most you to, when you're done, I need you to at least go back and rewatch Hot Fuzz uh, and probably Shaun of the Dead. At World's End is good, but I wouldn't put it on the same tier as those first two. Oh, definitely not. Yes, go back, rewatch those two movies, and then come back to this podcast, you uncultured swine. Me and Matt are in a contentious relationship today. It's going to fucking happen. Just get <laughs> over it. People who are getting ready to comment about how I'm bullying Matt, I need you to understand how much bullying he was doing to me before we started recording. <laughs> what are you talking about? There's no evidence of this. Alright, what else has been happening, Keith? <laughs> uh, well, uh, as of recording this today is the PlayStation 5's release. Uh, we had the Xbox Series X get released before. So when the Xbox Series X came out, new uh, stock came out, people got it. So apparently everyone's got the Xbox who wanted it. PlayStation 5 also sold out immediately again because they're only doing online sales. Yep. yep. And so you can't get them unless you ordered them directly through pre-order. Yep. I can, because I can kind of understand the logic of only doing online sales because with the pandemic, they don't want to encourage people to fucking go to stores and throngs and cause spreads. But at the same time, when you do it only online, you're just encouraging fucking bots to get every single one of the I, PS5s. I mean, to be fair, we knew for a long time coming that there was going to be a shortage of Xbox, uh, Xbox PlayStation 5s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So that, that's the unfortunate thing. So if you wanted one, you're probably not getting one for a while. And I do not recommend buying the, you know, $1,800 ones online that are being resold. No, of course not. Because there's going to be a lot of them. So I will have to get my hands on one eventually for the remake of Demon's Souls. For yeah. ideally less than $1,800. Yeah, I want to get one too myself, but I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with waiting. I have other yeah. games I can play while I'm waiting. Same. Uh, this one also kind of affects both of us, but uh, Genshin Impact had its uh, big update, which added in the end of the Geo area yeah. storyline. Looks like a couple things are going to hit the fan really fast once I start playing that. Yeah, they definitely also added a bit of content because I know several people who had kind of finished all the content that was offered in the base game. And you just kind of log in to do the daily stuff, which is not very filling, so... The fact that they're continuing to add more content is a good sign. Yeah, and that's going to be the problem with any live service game, right? There's always going to be that wall that you reach where there's not really much left to do, and you just have to wait for the new updates. It's the fucking World of Warcraft shit. Like, they have to constantly release new expansions because of the fact that people get to complete what has been offered already. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But overall, I think Genshin is starting to look like a game that is here to stay for some time. It's got itself really enrooted like a fan base, and it's doing really well for what a gacha game normally would at this point. It's not just the gacha, I'm getting a waifu uh, simulation that's keeping people. It's actually a fun game regardless. Yeah, it's yeah. got some solid core gameplay mechanics that the the waifus got me in the door, the gameplay mechanics got <laughs> me to stay. And if you've enjoyed Breath of the Wild, then you're obviously going to enjoy Genshin Impact, because it is obviously gotten a lot of its inspiration from that game. Oh, definitely. And really, the last thing I have to mention here, too, is uh, one of my favorite bands, Ninja Sex Party, did release uh, their newest the album. Prophecy? Yeah, uh, a few days ago. Well, not a few days ago. It was a couple weeks now at this point. Yeah. Uh, but I've listened to it quite seriously. Have uh, you, Peter? Because I know you're really the only person that listens to it. <laughs> yes, I've also taken the time to listen to The Prophecy. Uh, do you have a favorite song on the list? Uh... Give me a second. I wasn't prepared for this question, so I have to think about the songs that are on there before I make a decision about what my favorite is. I, I, I feel like it's not the best album they've released so far. Oh, no. It's definitely not. Um, but there's definitely like two or three songs in there that's like really good. Uh, actually, one song that uh, is definitely grown on me is Welcome to My Parents' House. Yes, that song is actually pretty fucking... It, it's a banger. Let, let's be honest, it bangs. The premise of the song is uh, he picks up this girl from a club and he's like, let's go to a place we can be alone. And it's his parents' house and his parents interrupt throughout the song. And it's like, you gotta be quiet. And he starts a whisper singing. <laughs> uh, do Math With You is... It's not my favorite song, but the punchline at the end is pretty good where he's like doing through all this mathematical stuff about why they're like the perfect couple. And he's like, also, you fuck good. <laughs> There's nothing mathematical about that. It's your math, trust me, Matt. As someone who does math, that is very mathematical. Uh, and I would say probably my favorite song on the uh, whole album is The Decision Part 2, just because I feel like it wraps up the whole Ninja Sex Party history up to this point so well. Like, it feels like original uh, Ninja Sex Party, and yes. not so much what they've turned into. Which, I'm not saying the new stuff's bad, but having, like, been listening to them for, through, like, the whole lifespan for over the last 10 years of them, like, turning what they are now, and... Decision Part 2 just takes you on that journey, which is great. Yeah, it brings you back to what they were when they began. It's literally, essentially, them redoing one of their earlier songs, The Decision, except with some of their more recent influences thrown into there. Yeah, they reference a lot of the songs that they released and all the stuff they've done. Yeah, but it's very good. Um, yeah, I don't know uh, what my favorite song from the album is. I quite enjoy the album. As you said, it's definitely not their best, um, but it's, it's up there. It's some... High quality music. Definitely. 
I'll take your word for that. So, do we have anything else going on in the world before we jump into the topic that nobody is aware of? No. Alright. Uh, in that case, I guess we can uh, jump in. For those of you who are my favorite type of fans and who have not read the title of this podcast before getting this far into the podcast, uh, this podcast is about a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, or The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. A fantastic movie. Uh, about Sean Connery and his friends and what they do in their day-to-day lives. It's <laughs> a, a really poor way of describing this movie. One of the actors that uh, their name actually does mean something to me. <laughs> uh, it's a 2003 film, uh, and it's essentially uh, what would happen if you took a whole bunch of lead characters from different books from the 1900s and or probably something from the 1800s. I don't know the time period that all the books come from. And essentially just mash them all together into like a precursor to the Avengers, essentially. It's just a whole bunch of people with weird, peculiar powers. And this is a, like, the original story is done by Alan Moore, too. So, like, he's a very famous name within the comic book things. Uh, he's responsible for uh, the Watchmen series. I believe he also does The Dark Knight Rises. Yes. There are six people on the team. Seven, I guess, technically. Uh, to go through them all, there's Alan Quartermain, who is a British uh, adventurer slash hunter who went to Africa and saved a guy's life and was then blessed with invulnerability because Africa would not let him die. Yeah, so his book series, he's uh, kind of like proto-Indiana Jones, and uh, essentially his big book was The Minds of Solomon or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, he's been a couple ones, as he said, he's essentially Indiana Jones, except a precursor to Indiana Jones before Indiana Jones existed. Uh, Next up, we have Captain Nemo, uh, who pilots the Nautilus and... Essentially, in this story, represents a hyper-technologically advanced man who has the capacity to create ships that can travel faster than anyone else. He's he creates kind of like, the first uh, automobile, as it's called. He's kind of like an Iron Man type. Why am I making that reference? Who knows? Who knows? He's kind of like Iron Man, but he's clearly just... Uh, who? What is an Iron Man? Because this movie takes place in 1899. To clarify, it takes place in 1899. Before yeah. World War One, 15 years. That was a weird way of phrasing that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. To reiterate what I just said and not sound like a fucking crazy person, this movie takes place towards the end of 1899, at the turn of the century, uh, and there is clearly tension building towards World War One. I. I don't know why they would call it World War One. It is just the only world war that has ever happened. A world war. Yes. Um, next up on the team, we have Rodney Skinner, I believe his name is, who is the Invisible Man, uh, a scientist discovered a means of turning yourself invisible but then died shortly after but this cat burglar gentleman thief broke into his home and stole the recipe for making himself invisible thinking it would make him the perfect thief it did it did if only for the slight problem of the fact that it made him invisible with no way of getting back to being visible which apparently is a downside for him i guess this guy's kind of like i don't know the hawkeye of the team weird that you keep making these references (laughs) keith Uh, So those are the first three that we're introduced to. The next up that we're introduced to is a bit of a weird one because we're told this is the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And the next one is not a gentleman. It's a lady uh, by the name of Mina Harker, who those of you who have read uh, the story of Dracula should be familiar with this name. Uh, She is one of the scientists who accompanies Van Helsing uh, to investigate Dracula and put an end to him. Van Helsing and Dracula are both defeated in the fight, but she is bitten by Dracula before this all happens and is turned into a vampire. So we got a vampire lady on the team. Now, I might be wrong about this, but in the 
original League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, it's the other guy, not her, right? Yes. I think they, if I'm not mistaken, because I don't know the specifics of what was going on behind the scenes, but I get the feeling that they wanted to diversify the team a little bit yeah. and add a female to the team, so that's how Mina Harker ended up being on the team in the League of Extraordinary Yeah, because it was her husband in the original comic that was part of the team as the vampire. Yeah. Uh, so, that's Mina Harker. I guess she's kind of like the Thor of the team. <laughs> I don't know why you keep making references to comic book heroes. This has nothing to do with comic books, Keith. It's all books. Um, so, at this point, we're also introduced to M. I'm going to go back and go through the plot. I just want to introduce the key characters before we get into the plot. Uh, M is literally M from James Bond. He is some sort of shady government agent who is referred to as Sir by all the people below him as and M as all the people above him. Uh, and he is just like a shady government guy who hires them to try and stop World War One from happening. Why does he call it World War One? That's weird. There's never going to be another <laughs> World War, but he stops them from... What is he planning? Uh... So that gets a lot more interesting when you realize who he really is. I don't know what you're talking about. His name is M, Keith. It's definitely not James Moriarty. It's M. Uh, so those are the four we're introduced to initially. I thought he was the Phantom. The <laughs> Werehood! He has many names, and none of them are M, actually. I mean, Moriarty starts with M. I guess so. Um... So we are introduced to those four characters as well as M initially, and later on we're introduced to the last two members, plus the half-member of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, Dorian Gray, from A Portrait of Dorian Gray. Uh, in his story, he's a very attractive young man uh, who a painter asks if he can paint him, and he's like, yeah, sure, uh, paint me like one of your French boys. And the painter does, and creates a beautiful painting of him. Uh, and then he meets with a lord who leads a very hedonistic lifestyle, and Dorian Gray's like, man, life sounds great. And then he makes a deal with the devil so that his soul goes to the devil, but he doesn't age. Instead, the portrait ages for him, and the spell is broken immediately if he ever looks into his own portrait, and then he immediately takes on all the age and harm that his portrait has taken on for him. Fun stuff. Um, and last but not least, the sixth and final member of the team is Mr. Jekyll slash Dr. H nope. Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll Mr. slash Mr. Hyde. I always get those names backwards. Um, yes. This one's pretty obvious. Mr. Hyde, he's from, <laughs> yeah. he's from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, and then the seventh secret member, well, not secret member, but half member, because he wasn't initially a member of the team, but he joins up with the team, is the one and only Tom Sawyer from The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Uh, there you go. Those are the seven members of the team. All of them equally important in their own stories. Uh, but yes, story opens with mysterious attacks on a bank. Uh, in England. And probably one of the dumbest movie characters I've ever seen. A side <laughs> character, a yeah. cop, who tries to stop a tank with his body that he clearly saw breaking through a brick wall and metal gate. So I actually make notes when I'm watching these movies, and that was like the first note on my list there. It's like, guy who tried to say halt to tank and it didn't work. Well, here's the thing he about this. He didn't even move, and it was moving so slow he could have just walked to it was, the side. It was the scene from uh, Austin Powers, where he had like a steamroller, he's like, see move, him. move, and he's like, no! <laughs> uh, the key thing about this, well, two key things. First of all, he's never seen a tank before, so... True, but he just saw uh, a did just see a breakthrough wall. A wall. The other thing, if you're looking at it, he's standing dead center to the tank, telling the tank to stop. And if you look at the tank during the point in the scene when it's driving at him, 
It has treads on either side of the tank, but then the middle of it is raised like two feet off the oh, ground. Yeah. So it should have just knocked him over and then passed completely him. fine. But apparently he did try to step aside at the very last second because we see it crushing his head as it goes past. Oh, what a dumb fucking character. Well, this whole opening is pretty dumb because the Germans, they take the bank, they steal the, the Da Vinci blueprints of uh, Venice... Uh, then we find out that the villain is the Phantom of the Opera, but just known as the Phantom, I guess, here. Well, he's not actually the Phantom of the Opera. He's just the Phantom, yeah. who is quite operatic, as described by <laughs> other characters. <laughs> it's so dumb. But the, 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 the first, so it starts off, obviously, you get the chuckle from the guy getting crushed by the tank, because of how stupid it was about it. But then the part that made me laugh right after is when the newspaper things are flashed up, and then one of the articles is like, not us, says Germany. Yeah. it's The Phantom comes out of the truck, and a whole bunch of people talking German, talk about how they're going to capture the guards, round them all up, kill all but one of them so he can tell the tale. It's just like, alright, that's already suspicious. And then the Germans deny any wrongdoing. And the next thing we know, we see a bunch of English soldiers breaking into a research facility in, in Germany, Germany. All speaking English, led by the Phantom again, except now he's speaking English. And he talks about how he wants to round up the scientists and then destroy everything else. And he blows up Zeppelins. I was I was about to say the Hindenburg, but no, it's just a generic Zeppelin. <laughs> he blows up a bunch of Zeppelins in the Zeppelin yeah. factory. A lot of Hindenburgs. He blows up Hindenburg guy. That's the plural of Hindenburg. Uh, but yes, uh, that happens. And then the next thing we know, we're being introduced to Alan Quartermain, who lives in a host in... Yes. Kenya. Kenya, that's right. This pleasant-seeming British agent comes to... A what I assume is some sort of embassy or such. I think it's just like a hotel, man. Yeah, probably. It's the nicest building in Africa. In, oh, I was going like to say ha- Africa. That's a little racist there, Matt. I was going to say it's the nicest it building in the area that we see. Oh, well. <laughs> but you're tantalizing to the entire uh, fucking continent. I thought you just meant that it was in Africa that they were going to. No. My bad. <laughs> Uh, but yes, it is a nice building that is in Africa. You're entirely correct, Matt. You weren't trying to say anything else. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I don't, now I am bullying you. I'll admit that was bullying. <laughs> uh, it's a very nice building, and the British agent walks in and decides to try and find Quartermain. This scene I fucking love, because the guy at the front's like, oh, Quartermain, he's the guy at the back, and he points towards the back. And in the area you can see, there are two elderly gentlemen talking to each other, and then sitting directly behind those two elderly gentlemen is a third elderly gentleman. Who is the if, furthest one in the back. Yeah, if I was told he's the one in the back, I would assume he is the one who is behind the two people who are closer to me. But no, he assumes he's one of the two closer people um, and goes to talk to him and asks for Quartermain. And it's just like a doofy old guy who's like, oh, you want to hear the stories of my... I don't know why I'm doing an accent. It wasn't even the right accent. <laughs> You want to hear the stories of my adventures? And he starts trying to tell him. He's like, no, I'm here on behalf of the Queen. I have a mission for you. And he's like, oh, fuck, I'm not actually Quartermain. That guy is. Talk to him. I'm just here to keep the story talkers from away from him. Because he doesn't like talking to people. And that all happens. This is definitely, like, some of the weird stuff here, too. Because obviously the bad guys end up attacking at this point wearing their, like, plate armor and machine guns. Like, they're invincible! No, they're just wearing plate armor, you... I, Guns. But like I you look, hear in the background, it's like, oh, are you Quartermain? He's like, yes, I'm Quartermain. Bang. He's like, oh, okay. The other dumb thing about that is like, this is clearly a guy who Quartermain has a relationship with because mm-hmm. he's been pretending to be Quartermain for years. And Quartermain, like, after he gets shot, 
just stands up and says, wrong quarterman, and starts shooting him. Like, do you have no other reaction to seeing your friend get fucking shot in the you heart? Know, to be fair, this is kind of just Connery in general, because yeah. it's not just this movie, it's most of his movies around this time as well. So yeah. He just kind of like, it's him making one-lines that don't really match up with the state of the movie as well. Yeah. Because <laughs> even, because uh, there's the big fight, obviously, where he has to defend himself. We get to see all of Quartermain's skills uh, when he's fighting off against these guys. Other people do die in this thing, too. He doesn't even bat an eye. And then at the end, the building blows up, and he's like, okay, I guess I'm in. Yeah. My host is gone. Uh, but uh, yeah, the to go back a second, Quartermain shoots one of these guys in the chest, and he's fine because he's wearing plain armor. And the other guy's like, oh, they're indestructible. He's like, no, he's wearing fucking armor. Which is ridiculous because plain armor, like, a lot of the stuff they're introducing... Are like new technology for the time, like automatic rifles and tanks and shit like that. Plate armor has existed since fucking medieval times. Yeah. Don't act like that's a new goddamn invention. Uh, so yes, they he tries to recruit Quartermain. Quartermain is not into it. His home is destroyed. And he's like, "All right, fuck it. I got nowhere else to be. Let's go." Uh, and they end up going. To, this is the other part that fucking bugs me. So Quartermain gets to England. Actually, before we get to the, I saw uh, custom comments about this bear, the attack at sure. the uh, spot in Africa. I think the no-name villains are the actors having the most fun in this movie. Oh, yeah. But they also have, like, the most weird, like, ticks about, like, how they have to specifically kill somebody. Because there's one I want to point out in question here, which is the guy who throws three knives, pinning Quartermine to the wall, and then pulls out a third knife immediately, ready to stab him. Which made me think, wait, what's this whole thing that he's going to throw the first two knives to pin him to the wall so he can stab him with the third knife? Yeah, I don't... It wasn't just two knives. He pinned Quartermain to the wall with four knives. Yeah. Why didn't you just kill him with the throw knives? <laughs> Could have easily done it. I also love how, up until this point, you get the idea that Quartermain is supposed to have some sort of superpowers. You're not given the specifics of it, other than the fact that apparently he's just, like, real fucking good at punching, because Buddy with a knife runs up to stab him, and even though Quartermain's, uh, like, pinned to the wall by the knives, he just socks him in the face, and guy is fucking out cold from yep. it. Although... The when he first jumped for cover when they first started opening fire on them, I could have sworn that Quartermain got shot. It really looked like he got shot and held his shoulder from the hit, but then he was. Falling. I mean, he holds his shoulder a lot in this movie. Yeah, fair. But like, yeah, the only real skill we kind of get from him is when he makes that really long shot to the guy yeah. running away. Yeah, and it's like I wounded him because I didn't want him to do anything, and then all the people just like let him go, and he makes the suicide film immediately. Yeah. And it's like, okay, uh, I guess no one wanted to stop that. Everyone gathers around. He starts reaching for his suicide pill. Sean Connery, or Quartermain, shouts out, Stop him! No one does anything. It, well, it's a really fucking dumb scene, to be honest. Because he pulls out his rifle as he's running away. And the British agent with, who's with him is like, It's too far. You're never going to hit him. And Quartermain like, puts out his gun. And he's like, See, I knew you were a reasonable man. He takes out his fucking glasses and, and lines up yeah, the shot. getting old. <laughs> lines up the shot, shoots him, and he's like, Oh my god, man, you hit him. Did you mean to wound him? He's like, yeah, we still have to question him. The other thing that's really fucking dumb is clearly the German soldier at this point, or not German soldier, but the soldier who's working for the Phantom, who we have no idea who he is at this point. Or if he likes opera. Yeah. Uh, he takes the suicide pill after he's brought into the square, but like no one's restraining him while he's being dragged there, so why did he take it before then? Why did he not take the suicide pill after being downed? Because he was on his fucking own in the middle of the field. Why did he wait to get dragged back into the center of town before taking the fucking suicide pill? Did he think he could get away until he saw Quartermain directly in front of him? I'm just thinking, because in my mind, the person who tries to run from the situation isn't the same kind of guy that's going to take the suicide pill. Yeah. So it was very much a last-ditch effort for him. 
So yes, uh, Cormac gets recruited. He ends up going up to England. This is one of, I think it's one of the funnier intentional jokes in the movie, which is the uh, British agent tells him to pack for British summer. And the next thought we see is pouring rain in London. That felt intentional, and it was actually one of the funnier jokes that yeah, felt they, intentional. They definitely have, like, some really good, like, situational punchlines in this movie that just work really well. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. Uh, Quarterman ends up knocking on the door, and he's like, Ah, oh, you've made it. Your trip was quite quick. Uh, that's impressive. And he's like, wasn't as quick as whatever his name is from around the world in 80 days. The thing I take issue with it is the British agent is commending uh, Quartermain on making it back to England very quickly. But... He got there before Quartermain and they were getting it together and presumably left at the same time. Why didn't he just bring Quartermain with him? Why did they take separate flights while he took the fucking fast, fast one? Maybe Quartermain had to pack some charred belongings from the house. And he couldn't have waited 20 minutes for him to grab his charred belongings? Was he just 20 minutes ahead of him? Did he like run into the building, turn around and wait for Quartermain to knock? Anyways, that, uh, just, that bothered me a little bit, but whatever. Uh, so Quartermain is brought into the basement of a building. This is one of the less funny jokes that in the movie. As he's being brought down the stairs, Quartermain asks, Where are you taking me? Australia? It's like, no, I think he says China. <laughs> no, he says Australia. Oh, okay. It's just like, how fucking dumb are you? Uh, other side of the world, I get it. Uh, whatever. So he's brought down like three flights of stairs, and then he's brought into <laughs> To be a, fair, that's a, that's a lot for a man his age. Yeah, I guess. Uh, and he's brought into what looks to be a library, uh, where he's introduced to M... As we've already said, he's called Sir by his underlings and M by his superiors. He has no other name. He's definitely not also going by the or Phantom. Or Moriarty by Sherlock Holmes. Yep. Definitely doesn't go by the Phantom to his underlings. This is where we get introduced to the concept of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Throughout history, they have done fantastic things. And we see pictures of, like, the fucking uh, Three Musketeers and shit like that on the Robin wall. Hood. <laughs> Robin Hood. It's just like, alright, cool. I guess this is a thing that happened. Um, we're going to get into why this doesn't make sense in a little bit, I'm sure. Uh, oh, but it does, though. Oh, but it doesn't. <laughs> so, uh, we're also introduced to the fact that apparently this one guy who goes by the Phantom has been causing fights to start out amongst the different nations and is really ratcheting up the tension to start World War One. Once again, <laughs> don't know why he keeps referring to it as World War One when there hasn't been a war yet. And also, he knows that the fandom goes by Phantom when he's purposely hiding his name so the other countries think that it's another country committing the attack. Yeah, well, he's hiding his identity entirely so that they don't realize anyone's involved, but he yeah. happens to know that he goes by the Phantom. Um, also, that he's doing all this so he can sell his weapons. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, anyways, we get introduced to that and then starts the recruitment montage where we go around recruiting different members of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. As we already said... Uh, like, Captain Nemo, uh, Rodney Skinner, yeah, and... In that, in that meeting room is where he met Captain Nemo, made the offhanded comment that he was a pirate, and then the invisible thief, Skinner. And Harkin. And, yeah, and Harkin, to be fair, this is but, another moment where we get to see, uh, Quartermain's skills in action, because he managed to fucking chokeslam the fucking invisible man yeah. while he's invisible. It's like, alright, cool, good for you. But yes, continuing onward, uh, we get introduced to those two. And then we set off to go recruit the last two members of our team. Uh, and the first place we have to go is to Dorian Gray's house from A Portrait of Dorian Gray. And the references get, like, real fucking heavy-handed at this point because... Hey, Dorian, you're missing a photo. <laughs> yeah. Dorian, there's a portrait missing from your wall. He's like, ah, you've never failed to miss anything, do you, Quartermain? <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> the fact that it's just a fucking dusty area with like just a picture missing. Yeah. Uh, they end up asking what Dorian even brings to the table because all of them have their own peculiarities. And Dorian's like, I bring experience to the table. And Quarterman's like, to elaborate on that, because that gave you no fucking explanation <laughs> of what he does. I met him once at university. He's like, oh, were you the traveling professor? And Dorian was a young student. He's like, nope, quite the opposite. Dorian was the traveling professor and I was the young student. He's like, oh, so Dorian just doesn't fucking age. Cool, I guess. To be, to be fair, only one person in this movie one, one up Sean Connery's uh, one-liners, and that's Dorian Gray. Yeah. <laughs> there's a scene here later, because they end up getting attacked by the Phantoms guys again. And there's the one guy that just unloads the machine gun at him. He's like, what are you? He's like, I'm complicated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yes, uh, that is Dorian Gray. At the same time, we also get introduced to Tom Sawyer in this scenario, because while they get attacked by a whole bunch of people on behalf of the Phantom... Tom Sawyer took out one of his underlings and took their place to launch his own sneak attack. Yes. Which makes sense, because Tom Sawyer clearly has the tools at his hand to discover the Phantom's identity on his own, when the only way anyone else found out about the Phantom's identity was by being told by the Phantom directly. Um... I also figured out what they were doing, that they were going to Dorian Gray's house, where Dorian Gray's house was. All this shit. Tom Sawyer's a very capable man, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so, there's a few things I want to talk about with this scene. First off is, we get some really weird rules about the Invisible Man and how it works. Because he immediately goes, when they get to Dorian's house, to drink the alcohol. And we see the alcohol go down. <laughs> yeah, we s- yeah, we see the alcohol pass through his esophagus. So it's not just his skin... Every part of him is invisible, but apparently once it gets to his stomach, it gets absorbed into his body instantaneously and becomes invisible at that point. Yeah, because does that mean like when he eats or drinks, he's got like, you know, a good like 12 hours before can it you watch dissolves food? in his body? Can you watch food decompose in his stomach? Is that a thing you can do with him? <laughs> I'm just saying, either this man is always hungry and naked, <laughs> or they just were not very clear on the rules for this they, man. I think what happened is they thought of a cool shot and decided to do it without yeah. thinking about the consequences of that action. Uh, we also get to see his usefulness in a fight, which is apparently if you can't see him, you can't shoot him, even as you unload bullets into an empty room. So unless you're Quartermain. <laughs> unless you're Quartermain. Um, uh, now, the interesting thing about this, because the twist of the movie obviously, is that the Phantom was M... And was actually James Moriarty the whole time who survived the Reichbach Falls. Yes. Uh, also implying that Sherlock Holmes is a real thing in this universe, which is pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, I think the exact wording is, James Moriarty died there and I, someone new, was born from the calamity. It's like, <laughs> not no, how that works. It's not how that works. You're still James Moriarty. You don't get to change your name because you went through something that should have killed you. But we know at this point, well, we know after finishing the movie, that at this point, Dorian Gray and Moriarty were working together to get the... Uh, I guess DNA of all these weird people so they can make like the ultimate soldiers and stuff like that. And the funny thing is, as much as we joke about Sawyer being the ridiculousness of this, Sawyer's the only reason they actually win because of this one situation. Technically, we'd all lost here if it wasn't for Sawyer. True. Yeah. Because like he's the only one at the end who does what he does and has the opportunity to do what he does. Yeah, because he wasn't planned for by Moriarty, essentially what screws up this part of the plan. Mm-hmm. And then they have to move forward with the plan, which was already in place, I guess, because we find out later that the Venice thing had nothing to do with anything except for causing the commotion that would force World War Two to start, or World War One to start. And he wants to say World War Two because they kept talking about it like that. Yeah. Or, if they succeed, that he gets all the stuff he needs anyways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, as we said, his goal is to collect samples from each person so that he can recreate them using the scientists he stole from Germany. 
Uh, so he wants a little bit of the Invisible Man skin so he can recreate the invisibility uh, process. He wants some of Mina Harker's blood so he can create vampires. He wants some of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's uh, serum. And he already had the uh, ceremonies or whatever the witch doctors in Africa did for Quartermain. Did he? But I think so. I think that's what they said. He just wanted Quartermain because he was the only one who could so they, capture they didn't Dr. Want, they didn't want anything Hyde. special from Quartermain because as far as they know, Quartermain's the only special thing about him is he's really good with uh, shooting. The True. immortality thing. They wanted only... him to catch... Yeah, Dr. they only wanted him to catch Dr. Jekyll because yeah. no one else could, because they knew he could because of who he is. Mm. Yeah. But they didn't think he had any powers they needed to steal from, just the fact he was a really good mm. hunter. Yeah, they had nothing to steal from him. They just wanted him to catch Dr. Jekyll so they could get Jekyll's serum. And then they wanted to steal uh, Nemo's technology, uh, which is a whole other bag of worms. Because the way they steal his technology is they take a picture of the steering wheel, and apparently that gives them enough technology to completely recreate the Nautilus from scratch. Yep. Um... Sure, that makes sense to me. Uh, uh, multiple Nautilus, actually. Uh, yeah, sorry, not Eight. a lie. Not a Lloyd's, I believe they call them, uh, which is so dumb. Not a Uh Yeah, they weren't taking anything from Dorian because Dorian was surprise, surprise, the sneak amongst them who was stealing this shit. Yeah, and they didn't want anything from Quartermain other than to catch Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Now, Hunt. I think and, I want to give credit to this too. Is they did a really good job of. When the, the teams, because most of this movie is actually the team on the submarine interacting with each other and nothing else really. Yeah. And them having their interactions and putting suspicion on each other for, oh, there might be a mole and what's going on situation. Yeah. Well, for, I, first it's them getting to know each other and get close, but then they find the evidence that someone took a picture in the captain's quarters. I think the really key thing here is a lot of other movies, especially more recent movies that would be made if they tried to recreate this movie, would have... Characters specifically talking about how there is a mole amongst them and they need to discover who it is. Mm -hmm. This one never explicitly states the idea that there is a mole amongst them. The closest they get is after everyone realizes there's a mole, they have someone call it the fact that Skinner hasn't been seen in a while. uh, And so he's probably the one who stole everything. The thief. The thief. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas up until that point, they do a really good job of like building tension and showing that there's mistrust amongst the members of the crew and trying to make... Essentially, they make everyone except for Quartermain, Harker, and Tom Sawyer look suspicious in their own ways. Dorian Gray looks suspicious by the way he's acting. They go out of their way to make Skinner look like he's trying to steal stuff. And the interactions between uh, Mr. Hyde and Dr. Jekyll make it very clear that Mr. Hyde is probably in more control than we would like to admit. And the only reason we have for not trusting Nemo is he's foreign. Yes, he's foreign (laughs) and he worships the god of death. (laughs) <laughs> That's the only reason you're not supposed to trust Nemo. Yeah. The man who supplied all the technology and transportation for this trip. Yeah. Uh, so yes, we get into Venice now. After- Actually, there is one other thing I want to address that we kind of skipped over. So when they're in London still, we have the reveal of the Nautilus. And that reveal is way too close to land for how big that ship is. Yes. Yes. Uh, so it's below the ocean and it rises up to above the ocean. But the way it rises, it must have been very fucking deep, which means this fucking uh, coast has a very sharp drop-off right yeah. after you get to the edge of the water. Because <laughs> that's all they could think of when it was coming. It's like, that's way too big for where that is compared to everything else. Well, they get a and whole bunch of moments of that ship later, should not fit where they put it. Yeah, later in Venice, they go underneath one bridge that's scraping across the top of the Nautilus, not to mention the top top deck that you can go out to. Yeah. yeah. And then they go under that completely fine. Then they come up to another bridge and they're like, oh, we can't go further. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, the size of the Nautilus changes drastically a lot. 
Uh, now that you mentioned the top top deck, I actually want to go back a little bit to when they were hanging out on the ship. Yep. There are some issues with the top top deck. <laughs> they had some CG problems. Some CG problems, but they also had a little dining table and chair out there. Yeah, so the first time we see them on the top top deck, it's Cordarain and Sawyer talking about how Sawyer really wants to fuck me in a harker. Uh, and she's probably not going to be into it. Uh, and then you see Dorian Gray go over and talk to her. But the entire time this is happening, me and Harker are sitting next to a dining table, chairs, and a bowl full of fruit. And then a fucking Captain Nemo comes out and he's like, oh, the solo chargers are done. We should go inside because we're about to die. And everyone just fucking walks back inside and then dives, leaving the fucking bowl of fruit in the table and chairs on top. So they're just floating in the middle of the ocean somewhere now. <laughs> the exact same thing fucking happens later because we see Quartermain teach uh, Sawyer how to shoot, supposedly, and how it's less so about accurately aiming and more so about taking your time with the shot. Uh, and so we see that all happen, and then Sawyer says some shit about, uh, fucking Quartermain's son, and Quartermain leaves to go back inside, and Sawyer's like, alright, I guess I'll go back inside, but they leave the whole launching device for launching the targets out of the ocean on the fucking deck before they presumably dive again. <laughs> I imagine most of the budget of this fucking trip is buying shit to put on the deck to be forgotten there. That's where most of the budget goes. Yeah. So yes, uh, we get to... Venice, and now everyone's really mad at Skinner because he hasn't been seen in a while, and he clearly stole some shit from everyone. Uh, and the city started to collapse because bombs that were placed below Venice are going off. Yes, and they decided that in order to stop the spread of the collapsing of Venice, they're like, we're going to get ahead of the collapsing structures and collapse another part of the city to stop the collapse. Yeah, I have so many issues with this because... <laughs> We, they established early on that there's multiple bombs. Yeah. So does that mean that they only put, like, they said, okay, we figured out with all of this Da Vinci blueprints that we can domino this city, and we're, by God, are we going to domino this city? Yeah. So they domino the city, and so that one building knocks over the other, knocks over the other. First of all, it's not how fucking buildings work. They're not that rigid of structures. Once they start to fall, they kind of collapse in on themselves, uh, not just topple perfectly upright into the next building, which then starts toppling. Uh, but regardless... As the city's collapsing, we see it happening in, like, a fucking wave going out from the center, which makes sense given the explosion, and not just in a straight line. But then fucking Sawyer runs out in front of it, blows up a single fucking building, and the collapsing immediately stops, which makes no goddamn sense. Uh, but, like, the interactions here are great, too, because, like, <laughs> they know about the car, obviously, but they're outside, and then the bombster's going up. Oh, no, what are we going to do? How are we going to get in front of it? I'm immortal. I don't run fast. <laughs> yeah, I'm immortal. Not a gazelle. I can't outrun that. Uh, it's like, oh yeah, the car. Yeah, Sora runs in, grabs the car. Um, this is also the fun moment where we get the surprise, surprise reveal that M is in fact the Phantom. Yeah, at and the same time that Dorian Cor kills Ishmael. Because yeah, Cormain's in the car with the Tom Sawyer and they're chasing in front of the explosion to stop it. Quartermain sees Phantom and runs off. Leaving Sawyer to yeah. do the dog Dorian job. jumps off. He's like, oh, Skinner must have betrayed us and told us that we were coming. So I'm going to fight these guys. Mm -hmm. And then uh, uh, Harkin then... We actually see probably the best uh, CG used for this bat attack. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not even that good. Don't even forget, the moment that happened slightly before that is they're driving through like a fucking column plaza, I guess is what I'm going to call it. Uh, and Quartermain's trying to shoot people on the top. But because the columns keep whipping past... He can't line up a proper shot. It's like, ah, oh, I can't shoot them. And then fucking Tom Sawyer, because we get the funny fucking running joke all along that uh, Quartermain likes to take his time to line up the perfect shot and always hit. And Tom Sawyer 
uh, shoots American style, which is shoot as many bullets as possible and hope that at least one of them hits. Yeah. So Cor- uh, uh, so Sawyer's just like, take the wheel, and then he just pulls out pistols and just fucking unloads them into the sky. It's like, I don't think you're hitting anyone, but all right. Definitely did. And meanwhile, Cormage is like, sit down and take the wheel. I don't know how to drive this thing. <laughs> Look at where you're fucking going. Uh, so yes, uh, yada, 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 fighting in Venice. Some of the best CG in the movie, but that's not saying a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, it's everyone slowly returns back to the base to find out that they were betrayed, and it's like, oh, it must be Skinner. And then Ishmael comes out, which, oh, where's the other question? Ishmael was in the, like, base of the ship when he got shot, like, three or four times by Dorian before he took, or went to take the, place the bomb, I presume, mm-hmm. and then take the emergency ship. But Ishmael limped his way back up here, and no one fucking helped this guy. Yeah, no one stopped. Just like, what are you doing? Do you need me to pass on a message for you? What's going on? Um, no, I need to walk up to the top to tell the captain. It was Dorian Gray. Don't tell him, though, for me. I need to do it. So then everyone gets back on the ship. They're chasing after Dorian in the little nautiloid, as I guess it's called. The little I, I, I will say, I do enjoy the line of, can we track it? It's like, I intend to catch it. Yes. Um... When a fucking beeping alarm starts going off on a record, and everyone's like, ah, let's hook up the record player so we can uh, hear the enemy's final plan. Which is the classic, the final villain reveals what was going on and explains the twist. But we get the really weird thing of, like, it's clearly just a record, and we're just hearing the audio. But because of the fact that apparently hearing the audio would be boring in a movie, they also intersplice in just black and white, like, shitty grainy footage of them talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but here's the best part, because in this grainy footage, obviously both Dorian and uh, uh, Moriarty are talking. Yeah. But we don't know who's Moriarty at this point, we just know that he's M and Phantom. Yeah. But we also see the guy that went to recruit uh, Sean Connery's character at the beginning just standing menacingly in the background, which isn't relevant to the recording at all. No. Because he doesn't say anything, he doesn't do anything. Uh, so yes, everyone is just like, yeah, sure, let's just sit around and listen to this thing, because that's not weird or anything. Uh, and Meanwhile, apparently... Dr. The- Jekyll's having a crisis because he's looking over and seeing Mr. Hyde in a mirror. And Mr. Hyde's like, no, turn it off, stop, it's something bad's happening. To clarify, we should explain this is not a new thing, him seeing Mr. Hyde in a mirror. It's apparently how they communicate to each other is through their reflection. Uh, but yes, Mr. Hyde's like, ah, oh, no, fuck, stop it, it's the worst, it's bad, you must stop it. And Dr. Jekyll's just like, eh, fuck it, let's just... See how this plays out. Let's see what happens. Well, he's like, well, what are you talking about? It's like, it rings the loud sound. Uh, and we find out that the loud sound that uh, Mr. Hyde was reacting to was, in fact, a high-pitched sound that triggers crystals that set off bombs. Well, it's crystals that release the pins that detonate the bombs. But the, the stupidest shit about this is because, obviously, yeah, it's the villain doing the big speech about what my plan was the whole time. But then he, you know, challenges the expectation. He's like, now I know what you're thinking. Why would I be telling you all this? I'm the villain. Well, that's because... I have won this fight this whole time. There's been a, uh, not just my voice, but a loud sound in the background. And why would he started saying there's been a loud sound in the background? Did someone just like smash the fucking record player down? No, he waits for him to explain what the loud sound is. The other thing is like he addresses the fact that like I've already won. Uh, and essentially explains that the whole reason he's been explaining their plan all along is because of the fact that if it was just the loud sound in the background, they wouldn't have played the record through. And he needed them to play the record through to trigger the bombs. But why give them accurate information in that case? Why not just lie and be like, just have fucking Dorian talking? Because at this point, they figured out that Dorian betrayed them. Why have M also give up the fucking goat in yeah, this situation? Yeah. They give out why? information that 
they didn't react to anyways, I guess. They explain, like, why they recruited the whole League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. The fact that they made up the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, which goes back to, to the exist. other thing of the Three Musketeers and Robin Hood being there. It's like, okay, they didn't exist or did exist in this world? Yeah. Did he take actual people who really exist? Did Robin Hood actually exist? And he's like, that was a cool guy. Let's pretend like he was a part of the League. Or did Robin Hood not exist, but he's still pretending like a fictional character existed as a part of the League? Who the fuck knows? This world likes to play fast and loose with fiction. Um... Although I, I have heard, I it's been a while since I heard it, but there are there is information to suggest that Robin Hood, in some capacity, did exist historically as Robin of the Hood, and it was multiple people. Sure, I guess. Yes, that is true. Yeah. If you say so. It wasn't a singular person fighting, like, the Sheriff of Nottingham. It was just a group of bandits. The concept of bandits who stole... <laughs> yeah, sure. That There's no reason why that couldn't exist, but the idea of Robin Hood himself... Fighting the Sheriff of Nottingham to save Prince John? No, that's not a person who actually existed. <laughs> uh, so anyways, yes. He reveals his whole plan, explains that he made up the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, specifically so he could get those four extraordinary gentlemen into a situation where Dorian Gray could steal all their vital details so they, they could create super weapons to sell for World War One. And uh, another great Dorian Gray line of when everything's getting finished with the record player, he goes, bomb voyage! Yeah. He has a couple dumb moments like that. Like, earlier on when uh, he explains that there's bombs, Dory Gray just in the background just goes, boom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, fuck, he's great. <laughs> it's almost like the actor got really bored on set. It's like, okay, yeah, I guess you're just going to stand here like that guy over there. And he's like, no. <laughs> no. I'm going to have fun with this. Y'all can fucking accept that fact. He's like, all right, well, we're only doing one of these black and white recordings, so I guess we have to stick with this first take. <laughs> uh, so, yes, uh... The ship blows up, and then Dr. Nope, Mr. Hyde, not Dr. Jackal, saves the day by opening some vents so air can get back into the ship while it's underneath the ocean. I think uh, it was more to drain the water, because yeah. the bombs blew up, I guess, the ballasts, and so water was flooding in uncontrollably, yeah, so and they had no way to manually drain them because they couldn't pull the levers. When you're under the ocean, there's not really... Space for the water to go out. The water is always going to push oh, yeah, in. Yeah. yeah, it was more so the, the it was the system that's used for inflating it to raise the ship, but yeah. they activated. Yeah. Uh, but this is where... So this movie has a lot of parallels with the Avengers movie. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to come out and say it. I So I have a different take on this, but you go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to save my take for the end of this movie. So it follows pretty much the exact same plot concept. The only difference is that the Nick Fury of the movie is the villain at the end. But, because even, like, it has the characters, like, they come together, but they don't work perfectly together, but they're all still kind of good in their own way. And then it takes someone dying on the team through to a betrayal, which ends up being Ishmael, is the person who kind of unifies them, but it's the whole ship thing. Because that's when, you know, the Hulk character of Mr. Hyde starts being a good guy working for the team and all that stuff. Fair. Uh, They get the ship all fixed back up, and they're like... Alright, can you track him? I was like, yeah, but we're moving too slow. There's no way we'll be able to catch up. I was like, ah, but it works for our advantage because they think we're dead and we're still alive, so we can take advantage of that. And we also can't super well track them because our tracking system's broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Rodney Skinner is going to send us fucking. Because yeah, they're getting Morse code message. Because he was there the whole time. He was just hiding on that because ship. Because he for knew Dorian as soon as they started to suspect that there was a mole, that they'd suspect the invisible thief. Okay, let's address this a little bit because Rodney Skinner shows up at this point. He has not appeared on screen since... Some would argue that he's never appeared on screen. 
Uh, so he appeared on screen in air quotes. The last time he appeared would have been when they captured Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And he was kind of punched around and got scraped. Oh, no, darn. No, the last time. no. I'm saying appeared on screen because he was aware there, but he was invisible. So he didn't technically appear on screen, but he was a part of the scene when he got into a fight with fucking uh, Quartermain. And Quartermain tells him to wear clothes yeah. from now on so that we can't yeah. see the invisible fuck. And yeah. then he takes that note and he's like, oh, you want me to wear clothes all the time? Well, I'm going to sit in the super secret secondary sub and wait for someone to try and steal it because I know that there's a traitor on the ship. <laughs> it's like, maybe participate a little bit before that point, bud. We end up finding out that they're in fucking the middle of Ra Siberia? Uh, no, it's uh, Mongolia. Mongolia, that's the one. Uh, and there's a super secret lab up there where they're working on all the technology for the Phantom slash M slash James Moriarty, who we still don't know that he's James Moriarty. Um, yeah, things happen. And the fun thing here is, like, so Skinner ends up giving them the specific location where he's going to meet them. And he shows up invisible, and he's like, I'm naked. And like, and it's how cold is it here? In a blizzard, I'm freaking freezing, I'm going inside. Well, the other thing is, he chose the fucking meeting spot. He didn't have to choose somewhere where he's gonna have to walk through miles of fucking tundra while completely buck-fucking-naked. He could have chosen a better spot to meet. But yes, he explains... He's smart, but not intelligent, if that makes sense. He explains the whole layout of the base... How there's labs where the scientists work on recreating their specific scientific uh, advancements. There yeah, are invisible spies, uh, jackal soldiers. Uh, I don't know. Uh, assassins. assassins. Yeah, vampire assassins. Yes. Uh, then there's also all backed by Nemo technology. Yeah. There's the f- foundry where they work on making all their metal and providing the technology. And all this shit. There's also prisons because they keep the scientists' families prison so that they continue to work. And if they stop working, then they kill the women and children. Um, and so they come up with a plan where Nemo and Jackal are going to... Or I guess Nemo and Hyde, more accurately, are going to rescue the prisoners. Uh, meanwhile, Quartermain is going to go... Quartermain and Tom Sawyer, of course, are going to go after uh, M. And then what is Harkin? Harkin's going to go deal with the Grey. Right. Harkin's going to go deal with Dorian Gray. And Skinner is planting the bombs. Planting bombs so that they can blow up the whole place to make sure nothing gets out of there in prime condition. Uh, and they all kind of do their jobs. And it goes fine. <laughs> yeah, it goes fine. Perfectly fine. Perfectly yeah. fine. Yeah. We stated, The thing I find kind of interesting about this is we see examples of their... Uh, Invisible spies who one gets into a fight with Tom Sawyer. Yeah, the funny thing is Tom Sawyer hits bumps into someone, knowing full well like, oh, they have the formulas here. Hits someone and it's like, oh, Skinner? And then <laughs> fucking uh, John Connor keeps running off. He's like, don't worry. Like he yells this, like, don't worry, it's just Skinner. And then fucking Buddy pulls a knife out, which as we've already seen from Skinner, the things you're holding are not invisible, so where the fuck did the knife go? That's another good question. Yeah. He's like, Why do you think I'm Skinner? It's like, alright, okay. This is one thing I was kind of disappointed in. Is in Skinner's fight with the Invisible Man, he like pulls his gun, shoots it a little wildly, doesn't hit anything, and then he ends up getting caught by a guy with a flamethrower who tries to light him on fire. And Skinner saves him from that guy. Um, then immediately brutally burned. Yeah, and then you can see the burns despite the fact that he's invisible, which is neat. Uh, Again, the rules for invisibility in this are all fucked. Uh, but yeah, Skinner gets uh, defeated, and then uh, Tom Sawyer gets captured by the Invisible Spy from earlier, who's now covered in soot and ash. Uh, but the thing I was kind of hoping is they've been 
making a lot of references to the American way of shooting, which is don't try and hit your target, just fire wildly and hope one of your bullets hits. I was really hoping that was how they were going to resolve the fight with the Invisible Man. <laughs> is he just goes full American and just unloads bullets down the hallway and one of them happens to fucking hit the Invisible Guy? Because you can't use fucking Sean Connery style shooting when the enemy's invisible. That's not true because that's how it gets resolved in the end. Yep. Which is so dumb. <laughs> uh, but yes, at the same time, uh, Mina Harker... Mina Harkin... Harker? Mina. 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 Mina is fighting with Dorian. They're having like a weirdly flirtatious fight where because, uh, this is probably my favorite fight in the whole yeah, series. Yeah, apparently in the past they had some sort of romantic relationship. Oh, it was very physical because after uh, Dorian believes he's killed Mina, yep. he pins says a line about how pins her to the bed with her sword with his sword, and he's like, "I always wanted to nail you to the bed one la- or in the bed one last time, but not like this." Yeah. Well, like there's so many good lines in this fight too because it's like. Uh, we're both immortals. Let's see. We'll put that to the test. They start fighting, and they get, like start fucking each other. They're healing. It's like we're gonna be here all day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like Dorian just seems like he's so unenthused about everything that happens in this movie. Well, there's even a line after Dorian thinks he's killed Mina, and she stands up and pulls the sword out and stabs him to the wall, and she's like, "You broke my heart once, but this time you missed." It's like Mina, don't try and play the one-liner game. That's clearly Dorian's <laughs> well, like Yeah. Or the part like too, like he even like doesn't seem worried about this until like he realizes he can't pull the sword out. <laughs> yeah. Or when she ri- literally destroyed his testicles, and he's like, if I was not immortal, and if that didn't heal, I would be really pissed. If that wasn't going to heal, I'd be very upset with you. And she's like, you once said you wanted to see your, de- or confront your demons. Let's see how you do it. And she takes out the buzzer, and she's like, Mina, just stop trying so hard. This is Dorian's game. You're just here to kill him. You don't need to play his game at the same time. Uh, so yes, she uh, rips the cover off of the uh, painting, shows it to him. And he is aged into death uh, and decrepitude. Yeah. Uh, at the same time with Nemo and uh, Dr. Nope, Mr. Hyde, not Dr. Jekyll. Uh, they are saving the prisoners when they come across one of the guards who is tasked by M with stopping them from... Uh, cl- and this guy seemed a little crazy through, through the whole thing anyways. Mm. Yeah. But we get the really fun moment of he picks up like an entire fucking jar. A huge Erlemeyer flask. Yeah. Those words. Uh... Of Mr. or Dr. Jekyll's formula, and he starts drinking it, and Mr. Hutch is like, No, not the whole thing, not the whole thing! Come on, buddy, come on! <laughs> but then, like, this is my tears, because he's like, Don't worry, he's burning through the formula at such a high rate, he's gonna any second of the day, and fucking through the wall and rips him back. Yeah. So, Mr. Hutch is just getting the shit kicked out of him by the bigger version of himself, to the point where he was like, Who is that? And Mr. Hutch just like, He's me! It's like, I mean, Technically, but also no, very much so he is not you. He's just using your formula. Uh, but yes, they don't even kill him or like have the formula run out and then beat him. He's crushed to death by the collapsing building after the bombs that Skinner planted blow up. Yeah. So they didn't even use that whole, he's burning through the accelerator, or the formula at an accelerated rate thing. Like, yeah. They it, brought that up. I'm like, oh, okay, that's A lot of expectations were subverted for a lot of these fights. Yeah. Yep. Uh... So then we go back to the Quartermain and Tom Sawyer versus M fight. Uh, Quartermain corners M only for him to be like, Sawyer, I don't think you trained him very well. And he holds up his fucking mask. Uh, there's something else I want to address here first because I don't know if I missed something. But when uh, he has him the first time with the gun to the back of his head, he's like, I got you now, Phantom. Or should I say James Moriarty? I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Was this just something they didn't transfer over from the, the comic? I don't know. I I, did, I missed the part where he got revealed as James Moriarty, so maybe it fucking happened. And it's explained how Quartermain knew that. Or maybe he just, like, 
put two and two together and was just like, you're Moriarty. He's like, no, I'm not. That man's dead. I'm just the person who was him before he dies. But like the, the scene, like they also, I think are kind of addressing like, no one's going to know who this is if I just say Moriarty. She's like, James Moriarty, the Napoleon of crime. No, nah, that man died. I was reborn from him. It's like, who talks with himself like this? Yeah. So yes, uh, Cordain ends up uh, trapping him. He ends up shooting the Invisible Man only to get stabbed in the back by uh, Moriarty, who then jumps out the window with a parachute and parachutes down. Well, uh, it, it's his cloak that he uses as a parachute. Sure. Um, gets to the ground only for uh, <laughs> fucking Quartermain to pull out his gun like he's going to shoot him. And not caring about the fact that he's been stabbed in the back, that is not an issue to him right now. It's the fact that his glasses were cracked, which is keeping him from shooting. Because <laughs> as we already addressed, he's getting old, and his eyesight is not what it used to be. Uh, so Tom Sawyer has to take up the mantle and shoot for him. Uh, pings him from, like, 900 yards or whatever. You know, some bullshit. Uh, and then he drops the flask full of all the different magical concoctions into the ocean, where it's disappeared forever. Uh, and he bleeds out, presumably, to die. Unless they made enough money off this movie and made a sequel, which they didn't. Um, I'm still holding out. You never know. Uh, so yes, that is the basic plot. Uh, Moria or Quartermain ends up dying from the stab wound to the back and is brought back to Africa to be buried um, amongst or near where near his wife, where she was buried. I thought it was next to his son. His it son. might have been next to his son. Uh, it was a grave that said Quartermain, so we don't know for sure who was inside it. I his wife's not important in the story. I, I, I want to give some kudos to this movie because normally the, the Harkin character would have been like having that romantic like love triangle thing with Connery's character and that just wasn't the case. Yeah, no. no. There's some like tension between them in the beginning but it was not developed to the point of being no, like romantic. because Quartermain even said he already had to bury two wives and several <laughs> lovers. He's not going through that yeah, again. Yeah. Do you know um, how many women I've killed? I mean... <laughs> so yes. Uh, now here's the reference I want to make. Because you compared this movie to the Avengers, I compared this movie to Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, because after Quartermain dies and all the heroes walk away from his grave, we get a close-up shot of his grave where the rocks start tumbling like he's exuding power and about to rise out of his grave, only to cut to black. I think you're omitting all the shaman dancing. Yep, the shaman dancing and chanting and setting his grave on fire We're fucking careless. Let's... The best part about this too is when they're doing the funeral scene and no one's around, Sarah just kind of glances over and you just see in the background this one guy just doing shaman dancing. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, to talk a little bit more about the comparisons between this and Dawn of Justice, uh, once again, it involves heroes. Instead of it being Nick Fury is M, uh, I think M is much more of the Lex Luthor type and that he's bringing heroes together for various reasons. Uh, it's not well explained in Dawn of Justice. It's a little bit better explained in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, and that's something I, I will give credit to this movie too is the whole concept, the villain's plan makes sense. Yeah, yes. There were some loose ends that don't work together because some stuff was based on chance. For example, going from Dorian Gray's apartment to Venice was kind of like it was in the plan, but the plan didn't need to go that far and yeah. it only went that far because of Sawyer. But when the twist reveals happen, they feel like, oh, that makes sense. When you look back, everything fits up perfectly. The hints were there. Yeah. So yes, uh, much like Don of Justice, it involves someone bringing the heroes together for various reasons. Because there's literally the scene where Lex Luthor says, Ah, oh, Bruce Wayne meeting Clark Kent. These are two people who need to know each other. It's like, but why though? So once again, you got the villain bringing the heroes together to form a team to work together. Uh, the heroes not getting along at first and fighting against each other, uh, which can be 
introduced to the fact that Skinner and uh, Quartermain fight a fair bit during their contentious relationship. Uh, it There's less so of the Martha scene. There's not really the moment where they realize they have shit in common that causes them to fight together. Uh, but it does end with the main hero dying, only for it to be very clearly implied that he is going to come back to life if they make enough money for a sequel. Except in DC's case, they didn't have to make enough money. They decided they were going to make a sequel. They don't care about how much money it makes. And an alternative version. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Um, I think it's much more... The fun thought I had is that Dawn of Justice is very clearly a ripoff of A League of Extraordinary <laughs> Gentlemen. Uh, but yeah. So all in all, I know Matt, this was your first time watching this movie. Yes. Keith, had you seen this movie before? Yeah, I have. Alright, uh, so Matt, what was your thoughts on the movie? I thoroughly enjoyed the movie, just how all over the place it was, and the diverse cast of characters that were included. Although I do have to say, watching the movie, despite it being my first time, I had several moments of deja vu where it felt like I'd seen this exact scene before. Because it's, like you guys have mentioned, it's not a new kind of story that's been told. Like, gathering a bunch of heroes together to fight an evil. It's been done in various formats. Yeah, the unique thing about this is instead of gathering, you know, superheroes or like something, you know, that's well established, it's just an assortment of popular book characters. Yes. An assortment of individuals from literature who have interesting abilities. So we've used this term on the podcast before when talking about Surf Ninja specifically, I believe, but a couple other movies. This movie is very much a popcorn movie in that it's not meant to make you think super hard about what you're watching. It's just like an enjoyable, fun, silly romp that you get to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I was telling Matt about this before the podcast, but I had watched this like 17 years ago when it first came out and hadn't watched it since. So somehow in my mind, the scene in Venice where Quartermain uh, captures, or not captures, but confronts the Phantom and discovers his true identity, that was the climax in my mind and the movie ended like 10 minutes after that. (laughs) And I got to that scene and was fucking flabbergasted to discover that there was still like an hour left in the movie (laughs) after that point. Um... That being said, uh, certain things, I think they did a very good job of setting up certain things. Like, the fact that Dorian was the traitor, uh, if you're at all familiar with A Portrait of Dorian Gray, it's very predictable that Dorian is the murderer, uh, as well, or not the murderer, the traitor, um, as well, like, a lot of the behavior that he presents throughout the movie. A lot of it is stuff that you can look back and be like, oh, that makes sense now when you're watching the traitor reveal tape. Yeah. But, like, the fact that he just outright refuses to join into the team and then he gets attacked and is immediately on board with joining the team also feels like very clear signs that he's the traitor in the fact that he's immediately on board with joining the team. The fact that he wasn't on board with joining the team is just like a red herring to make you think like, oh, he didn't want to be there. Clearly he's not the traitor. The traitor would want to be there from the start. I feel like they did a very good job of setting up Dorian as the traitor. I think they put less work into setting M up as the traitor and that was supposed to be the fun twist reveal. Mm-hmm. I think Dorian was one of the ones you were supposed to be able to see coming. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, they did a good job throwing suspicion onto other characters. But despite that, I did believe that Dorian Gray was going to be the person who was betraying them. And I just knew in my soul that Skinner was not the traitor. Despite the fact that everyone's like, the Invisible Thief, he's behind it. We gotta find him. Well, I mean, as you've already said, there's a lot of things you can recognize other movies from. (laughs) The moment every single character in a team agrees that one person is the villain before all the details have come out, 
you can very oh, comfortably yeah. say in your own mind, yeah, that's not the villain. The, this is a surprise twist that they've got coming for it's us. It's classic been, rogue syndrome when you're playing D&D. They've yeah. been tricked, backstabbed, bamboozled. Bomb voyage! <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, uh, Dorian's my favorite character in this movie. Dorian is a fantastic character. He was a blast. So do you guys have any other thoughts about the movie you'd like to discuss before we... Wrap up. So I know this was based off a comic. Have any of you guys actually gone through it, though? I have I not. I have not had the chance to read the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic book. Yeah, and going into this, I didn't know that all the characters were from various comp or various other works of fiction. It wasn't until I started hearing familiar names like uh, Dorian Gray, and then, uh, of course, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the, and the name drop of Alucard. Or yeah, there was, like, so, like, honestly, you could probably... Do this story and like even do sequels using other characters like hell you could have thrown Edmund Dantes in there or something like that. I think that is something I would really like mm. to see. So one of the things about this is all of the characters I recognized and was familiar with their works with the exception of Quartermain. He was the only one who I wasn't familiar with before this movie. I think it would be really cool to see someone recreate this in a modern time but instead of using the exact same characters in the exact same way taking more modern versions of a similar idea of characters uh, and putting them into the same sort of story. Also, it's really just fan fiction. Also, yes. I, I just thought of something. Since Quartermain is technically blessed by Africa to never die, yet he's still aging. So, what happens when he just comes to that point where he would die of old age? Does Africa just go, nah, nah, we're not letting you do that? <laughs> Come back for another five minutes of death throes? Do you know that he's not aging, though? Because all he says he was, he was blessed by a shaman... That he would never die? True. How old was he when he was blessed by his shaman? He doesn't explicitly say when he was a young man he was blessed by his shaman. I mean, John Connery's looked like that since the 70s. Fair enough. So for all we know, he was already in need of glasses when he was blessed by the shaman. He's like, come on, man, you couldn't have blessed me like a decade ago when I was still young and hip? Do you guys have any questions for the audience? That's another thing. Okay, so I have a question. Fuck you guys, you don't get to ask questions. Okay. Okay. Uh, so we already discussed the idea of remaking it in the modern era with newer characters. Uh, if that was a thing that they did and essentially just wrote fan fiction of different characters from more modern stories, what character from what work would you want to see uh, put into this new League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? What character with extraordinary powers from some other fiction do you think would be a good fit? Or even non-extraordinary powers. like Just like a Sherlock type who's just smart but not actually... Well, Especially. we already know Sherlock is probably dead because of how the story yes. goes. Yeah. But if you had your own version, like, I don't know, Dick Dixon, the gumshoe detective from my favorite series of novels. Or Dick Tracy? Fucking, I'm not naming a specific character. <laughs> but yes, Dick Tracy. Who do you think would make a cool addition to this League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? I mean, honestly, I already said the name Edmund Dantes from... Yeah. Uh... He, he would be a good kind of uh, character who doesn't have any powers... But he has intelligence well, and the, the thing is, his powers would be, I guess, kind of similar to Nemo's, where he has, like, the charisma and the money. Yeah, true. Charisma and money to get what he wants, and he has all the education he needs to trick people into doing what he wants I mean, to, to be fair, he's like a master swordsman by the end. Oh, yeah. See, the thing I'm worried about is they would take it in a... So, yeah, that would make him Nemo, because Nemo's a good swordsman also. <laughs> I'm saying we replace Nemo with Edmund Dantes. I'm worried they would take it in, like, a way of trying to appeal to the younger generation a bit too much and have, like, 
Edward from Twilight replaced Mina Harker or uh, some shit like that. Uh. Uh, they could do Doc, like Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. He'd yeah. be an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. Or, Frank- or even just Frankenstein monster. monster. Yeah. yeah, that would be a good one. As like a kind of replacement for uh, Mr. Dr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Literally, essentially split them into two separate characters and have both Dr. Frankenstein and Frankenstein's yeah. monster. But, oh, I'll tell the story in the way that, like, Dr. Frankenstein joins the team, but he's, like, aware of the fact that his monster is out there. And then he gets killed by his monster, and they're like, all right, so you want to join up now? And he's like, all right, sure, I'll take the doctor's place now that he's dead. <laughs> Anyways, get back to us. Shoot us an email at whatismypodcastabout at gmail.com and tell us who you think should be a part of the new League of Extraordinary Gentlemen fanfiction that I'm definitely not writing. The Tom Cruise mummy. No. Uh, the Scorpion King. Ooh, the Scorpion King. Actually, I wouldn't mind that one. <laughs> that actually would be pretty good. Any recommendations? Uh, yeah, I've got one. This is a uh, another film that Sean Connery starred in. It's the 1996 film called The Rock. Fuck! <laughs> Were you going to recommend that? Maybe. I'm sorry. It's alright, go on. Tell us about yes. The Rock, this movie I've never heard of before. So... Co-starring Nick Cage and Sean Connery. Nick Cage plays a chemist and Sean Connery, an ex-convict. The one man to ever escape Alcatraz. And uh, that comes into play because he's brought on board, along with Nick Cage, to stop a bunch of terrorists that claimed some weapons and are holding Los Angeles hostage. And they need Sean Connery's wisdom and advice and experience on breaking into Alcatraz, since he's the only person who's ever gotten out. The thing I like about that movie, too, is it kind of just low-key hints that he's James Bond in this movie that oh, yeah. was caught by the U.S. and have disavowed. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of James Bond, I'm actually going to recommend one of the James Bond movies that uh, Sean Connery starred in, specifically Goldfinger, uh, which is one of the kind of classic James Bond movies that you got to see. Uh, it stars Sean Connery as James Bond, uh, fighting against Goldfinger, a supervillain who is a bit fond of gold and likes painting women gold. It's a whole thing. Uh, specifically, Goldmember from, uh, the Austin Powers movies is a parody of Goldfinger. Um, but yeah, I think he's, uh, it's one of the better James Bond movies in my mind, at least. I recommend checking it out if you haven't seen some of the early works and are only familiar with the Daniel Craig ones. So, for my Sean Connery uh, recommendation, I'm going to actually pick Inanna Jones in The Last Crusade. He's not really uh, the big role in it. But, but he does have a pretty key role in it. Yes. But uh, also, like, just him and uh, Harrison, Harrison Ford, Ford playing off each other. Just, it, they work so well together. It's a shame we didn't see them together in more movies. <laughs> to be fair, that movie also does feel like peak Sean Connery. Like, after the point when he was a bit younger and, like, acting as an action star. And more of the point when, like, he was just kind of, like... I am Sean Connery. I don't play other characters. I play Sean Connery playing that character. Well, the reason I think about it is because, like, I think Harrison Ford and Sean Connery both have a notorious uh, history about them of, like, they don't really care that much and they're playing what they want, essentially. Yeah. Not saying, like, they're bad at their jobs, but I feel like both of them react in the same way. Most of that movie was Harrison Ford and Sean Connery working together, not their characters. Yeah. Um... But you get, like, great moments, like the discovery that Indiana Jones is actually named after the dog. Yeah. Um, yeah, that one's another great movie. All right. I forgot Sean Connery also played a dragon in the movie Dragonheart. Yeah, Dragonheart. Yep, Dragonheart. Another... Uh, also, his famous line of, you're the man now, dog, from Finding Forrester, I believe. Yep. Yep. You're the man now, dog. So, no one has correctly guessed her Instagram from last week, if I'm correct. Uh, no one has. All right. 
Uh, in that case, I just want to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. Uh, you can also find us on all major podcasting uh, platforms. You can also find our videos on YouTube. Video sounds weird. It's still just the audio. There's We don't record these videos of us talking. That just feels weird to me. Um, I'm going to stop talking about YouTube now. Uh, feel free to reach <laughs> out to us on YouTube or on Instagram where you can comment on our posts. Uh, we also do post pictures of our table before we start talking where we have little hints to what we're talking about. So you can try and guess what we're talking about and get called out in a future episode if you manage to correctly guess. You can also contact us uh, through email with our email of whatismypodcastaboat at gmail.com. Those words are spelt the way they always are. Uh, if you have a question or you happen to know what our podcast should be about, make sure to reach out to us via email uh, and tune back in in a fortnight for our next episode where we talk about... A big calamity that happened in the past. Thank you.